of us, we know that He's God, but He's not the all-sufficient one. He's not enough for us. We need God and. What I'm here to tell you that all of your soul's longings, everything that you truly need are bound up in Him. And if you're going to say, hey, well, what about everything else in life? What about food and clothing? I'm just going to say, the reality is this. God is all you need. We all have things we want, not superficial things like a better body or more clothes. Real deep down things like inner peace or feeling secure in the decisions you make. These are the things that really matter and which we have little or no control over. Pastor Daniel is going to show you some of the names of God. You'll be able to see that just as God took total care of Abraham, he can and will do the same for you if you're willing to let him. Now here's Pastor Daniel in Genesis chapter 16 as he continues his message, Ishmael. So now she flees from the presence of Sarai. She flees from her mistress. And as she's going, we've come up with this, the angel of the Lord. The messenger of the Lord found her by the spring of water in the wilderness, by the spring on the way to Shur. This is the first time we meet this angel of the Lord, who you'll find some 48 times in your Bible. And there's a lot of discussions about who the angel of the Lord is. There's a lot of commentators who would say that this is an Old Testament incarnation of Jesus, the Messiah. Some people would say it's one of the archangels. You guys know what I'm always going to say. That when the Bible is silent, what? We should be also. So I don't know who the angel of the Lord is. I know he keeps popping up and he speaks in the name of God. I don't feel comfortable saying that this is an Old Testament incarnation of Jesus. Because it doesn't say he's the Messiah. It says he's the angel of the Lord, the messenger of the Lord. Some people believe that. And if you believe that, I have no problem. that You believe that this is a theophany, a sighting of Jesus in the Old Testament. And I'm okay with that. A lot of people who I really respect and love, great scholars believe that. Other ones say, well, it just doesn't say that. So we don't know. But look at what happens here. You got to love this angel. What does he say? Hagar, Sarai's maid. Where have you come from and where are you going? fascinating. He knows her name. He knows that she's Sarah's maid. Where are you coming from and where are you going? See, this, I love this about the way God works because oftentimes God just doesn't tell us the score. He makes us have to talk about it. God doesn't just say, this is the deal. Sometimes you just ask, like remember when Adam and Eve, they were hiding from the Lord? Where are you? God knew exactly where he was. But God likes to ask a question to draw somebody out. He knew exactly who she was. He knew exactly that she was Sarah's maid. He knew everything. But he asked, where are you coming from? And where are you going? And Hagar simply answered, I'm fleeing from the presence of my mistress, Sarai. 
Now think about this, this whole calamity, Abram and Sarah making a big mess. Hagar is fleeing, this Egyptian girl, and the angel of Yahweh shows up to talk to her. This shows God's grace, shows God's love. This angel, in the name of Yahweh, see the angel of the capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D? That's the personal name of God, that tetragrammaton, the Yud, the He, the Vav, and the He, Yahweh, old school Jehovah. That's the way they used to say it. Comes and speaks to her. Look at what he says in verse 9. And really there's two focuses or foci of this discussion. First, it's the status of Hagar in Abram's house. And second, the future of her son. So really, this angel comes to share two things with her. Her status in the house and what's going to happen to her son. You get the status. Look at verse 9. Return to your mistress and submit yourself under her hand. She says, go back and submit. Now, it's interesting. I did a staff devotion just this week on the spiritual discipline of submission. And you might say, that's a strange thing to talk about in a staff meeting. But the reality is that the Bible teaches submission as the way it is to be a Christian. First, we submit to the Lord, and then we submit to each other. Before a, a wife submits to her husband, it says, submit yourselves to one another in the fear of the Lord. Submission is the heart posture of every believer. First, we submit ourselves to God. We submit ourselves to his word. And then we submit ourselves to one another. We esteem others higher than ourselves. We realize the greatest in the kingdom are the servants of all. That's submission language. The Apostle Paul talks about himself as a debtor to the whole world. He's saying, I am submissive to the whole world in the name of Jesus that I may serve it. And it's interesting that even though Sarai is not treating her right, she says, go back and submit to her and honor her. Now, I don't even have to make an application for you and I. Because we all feel the tension, don't we? Submitting to one another in the fear of the Lord. We live in a culture in America that the concept of submission is abhorrent to our culture. You know why? Because we had the blessing of the 60s where all the hippies like, question authority, right? And then when all those hippies became yuppies and they had kids, they already had a question authority mindset and they just taught their kids to not respect authority. And so we live in a culture where everyone thinks that they are the final authority on everything. You know, as I love when I talk to my son, Obadiah, and Obadiah tells me something. I'm, I'm like, Obadiah, that's not really true. Yes, it is. <laughs> well, buddy, no, it doesn't act, that's not actually what it means. Uh-huh. You know, my, my other seven-year-old buddy told me so. <laughs> and we laugh, but we're all like that, Right? I mean, when was the last time you voluntarily submitted to somebody? Have you ever? I hope so. Because we submit to God by submitting to other people. Just the way we love God by loving other people. And so, husbands, you submit yourselves to your wives. Wives, you submit yourselves to your husband. We submit ourselves under our bosses. And we're the best employees in the world in the name of Jesus. We submit ourselves under government, even when we don't like it. Now, we know that submission has a stopping point when it becomes destructive. That's where submission has its end point, when submitting is destructive. 
You find that in a number of places in the scriptures. But the reality is, is for most of us, we don't submit at all to anybody, right? And I'm here to tell you that submission is a spiritual discipline that's very valuable to God. When I'm talking to a husband and a wife or a child and their parents, I say, listen, you submit to the Lord and your spouse gets the benefit. You submit to the Lord and your parents get the benefit. As we submit to God, the people around us get the benefit of that. Because if we're submitted to God, then we're going to submit ourselves to one another. Oftentimes, submission is always being spoken about of wives submitting to their husbands. But it first begins with submit to one another. And then it says, wives submit to your husbands and husbands die for your wives. And I get tired of hearing people say, oh, the Apostle Paul, he's sexist. I'm like, darn right he is. He's anti-male. Because I'd rather submit than die any day. So people say, oh, I don't understand this. Women are less than men. They have to submit. I'm like, man, men have to die for their wives. And you know what? It's really easy to submit to a person who's willing to give up their life for you. Right? We submit to Jesus because he's willing to die on a cross for our sins. And submission is a spiritual discipline. And it's fascinating that the angel of the Lord says, Hagar, go back and submit yourself. You're not supposed to be out here. Go back. And what else? Go back and look what it says in verse 10. Then the angel of the Lord said to her, I will multiply your descendants exceedingly so that they shall not be counted for multitude. Wow. He blesses her. He says, listen. I'm going to multiply your descendants exceedingly. I've promised to bless Abram, and I'm going to bless you with them. Your descendants are going to be multiplied. In verse 11, it goes on to say this. It says, Behold, you are with child, and you shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael, which means God hears, because the Lord has heard your affliction. Wow. What a promise. Go back and submit I'm going to bless you with a ton of descendants. And you're with child. You're going to have a son. His name's Ishmael. And that means God hears. Now, when the angel tells her about her son, he shall be a wild man. So we get this idea. He's going to be an outdoorsy kind of guy. He's not going to be a refined type of a guy. Notice what else it says. His hand shall be against every man, and every man's hand shall be against him. So not only is this guy a wild guy, but there's going to be a lot of conflict for him. We're going to see Ishmael picking on Isaac in Genesis 21, verse 9. We know that Ishmael is the father of the Muslim nations. And no matter how you rewrite history, Muhammad spread Islam by war. Now, I need to say this because we know that that's a historical fact. But the skeptic will say, well, Christianity was spread by the sword as well. And you know what? That is a part of Christian history that we have to apologize for. I always tell people this. People do all sorts of awful things in the name of God. Had Jesus spread his message by the sword, then we could say the message is wrong. See, Jesus never spread his message by the sword. He spread it by giving up his life for everybody. Jesus' jihad was love. Jesus' jihad was love. See, Muhammad, he spread Islam in its infancy by war. Just go read it. Read the history. So when Muslims take up arms against 
other people, you can look right back to the founder and say, well, it makes sense why. Their founder did that. But as a Christian, no way. No way. That's not who our Lord is. But here we have a prophecy. He's going to be a wild man. His hand's going to be against every man and every man's hand against him. And then finally, he shall dwell in the presence of his brethren. It's interesting. Ishmael is going to maintain an independent standing in the presence of all the descendants of Abraham. Think about a map of the Middle East today. Think about it. This prophecy given thousands of years before Jesus. You're looking at its fulfillment today. Descendants of Ishmael dwelling in the presence of the descendants of Abraham through Isaac. All right here. 2,000 years before even Jesus walked on the earth. Now, look at how Hagar responds in verse 13. Then she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her. You are the God who sees. In Hebrew, it's El Roy. For she said, have I also seen him who sees me? Therefore, verse 14, the well was called Beer Lahai Roy because it's between Kadesh and Bered. Beer Lahai Roy means the well of the one who lives and sees me. So she's naming the Lord because he's seen me in my affliction. She's naming the place where this happens. This is the well of the one who lives and sees me. And in verse 15, tells us simply, So Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram named his son whom Hagar bore Ishmael. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abram. So she goes back. She honors this message. She obviously tells Abram, what this angel of the Lord said. Abram names the child Ishmael, and we know that Abram at this point is 86 years old. Now, as we move into chapter 17, it says this, when Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am almighty God. Walk before me and be blameless. I will make my covenant between me and you and will multiply you exceedingly. Then Abram fell on his face, and God talked with him, saying, now look at this. Now Abram is 99. So 13 years have elapsed between the end of chapter 16, when Ishmael is born, and then chapter 17. Now he's 99 years old, right? And the Lord appears to Abram, and he speaks to him, and he says, I am Almighty God. In the Hebrew, it says, I am El Shaddai. Now, it's translated as almighty. When they translated the Hebrew scriptures into Greek, something we call the Septuagint because there's about 70 scholars. See, the Greeks, they thought that Greek culture was the bomb diggity. It was the way to go. And so every group of people, I said the bomb diggity, that's right. <laughs> you know, I was a little bummed. Pastor Bill said butthead if you were here. I can't believe he got to that one before me. That's neither here nor there, you know? So much for Pastor Bill being so conservative, right? <laughs> He's going to give me a hard time for that one later. So the Greeks, they decided that they wanted to make every land that they conquered, they wanted to make it Greek. So they took all of the best writings of all the different people and they translated them all into Greek. 
when they were in the area of Israel, Palestine, they said, we're going to translate the Hebrew scriptures into Greek. And so when they did it, they translated El Shaddai as Panta Krantor, which literally means him of all power. Panta means all. So the all-powerful one, if you look at it in the Hebrew, it's fascinating because most people would say that the Shaddai, it comes from the root shed, which either means to pour out blessings or in abundantly. So most people would say El Shaddai is God, the all-sufficient one. Or it's also fascinating that the word shad, now I'm going to give you a quick little Hebrew language lesson. In Hebrew, when it was written, it was all consonants, no vowels, okay? The vowels were put in much later by a group of people called the Masoretes because Hebrew wasn't a common language anymore, and people weren't just going to read it the right way. So if you read the original manuscripts, it's just all consonants. So it have the three, and most of their words are based around what they call triconsonantal roots. There are three letters that are together. So this El Shaddai is the S, the H, and the D. But you can vowel point them different ways. And if you were to read the writings of the rabbis, which I like to call rabbinics, you'll find that anytime you get to a cool word, the rabbis go through all these different words that you get from this one root. So I just gave you one, the idea of shed, which literally means to pour out in abundance. Other rabbis say that it's the word shed, which is actually the word for breast, which speaks of the reality of the comfort or nourishment of God. So you have this idea as El Shaddai as the all-sufficient one, the all-nourishing one. It's a fascinating word that you can pull all these different things about it. So we have either all-almighty, which has the idea of God having all power, or all-sufficiency, because you think about all a child needs in its infancy is its mother. And a mother is sufficient for a child because of a mother's maternal care. So both of these words are from the same root, El Shaddai. So God says, I am the Almighty One, the All-Sufficient One. Now, I want to make the application for you and I. Do you know God is all-powerful and all-sufficient? For so many of us, we know that he's God, but he's not the all-sufficient one. He's not enough for us. We need God and... Well, I'm here to tell you that all of your soul's longings, everything that you truly need are bound up in him. And if you're going to say, hey, well, what about everything else in life? What about food and clothing? I'm just going to say, the reality is this. God is all you need. Martin Luther said it this way. I get to enjoy all this in Christ as well. See, God is the sufficiency for the human soul. He is all that we need. He's all that we need. And sometimes the only way to learn that is when he's all we have. And sometimes that's what the desert season is all about. Stripping away everything that we could try and find sufficiency in. So that we can learn that he is the all-sufficient one. That God himself satisfies the human soul to its fullness. So I want to encourage you, if you're in a valley, or if maybe you're not, but you will be in a week, a month, a year, 10 years, listen, sometimes you only know and learn that God is sufficient when he's all you have. And if he's all you have, and you find him to be sufficient, 
then you are the richest person in the world. You have learned the most important thing, that he is all sufficient. Now, it's interesting. The Lord says, I am almighty God. Walk before me and be blameless. I love this. Who do we walk before? Him. This is, for me, the key to how to live a holy life. Sure, it's inspired by the Spirit of God, but it's the reality that no matter where you are, God sees everything. We walk before him. You could fool the whole world. Everyone. You could posture and say, I'm this, I'm that. God sees everything. There is a set of eyes that are on you that knows not only every action, but every motivation in your heart. And when we truly fear the Lord, which is the beginning of wisdom, then all of a sudden we realize, I walk my life before him. And he sees everything. I can't fake him out. I can't pretend to be something I'm not before him. A.W. Tozer said, look, it's really easy to be holy when someone's looking over your shoulder. Now, some of you may be freaked out by that. I mean, why is God looking at everything? And I would say because God loves you so much, he doesn't want to miss a beat. God loves you so much, he doesn't want to miss a beat. Just the way when you have a child, and that child's young, parents don't want to miss a beat, right? You want to see all of it. All of it. That's how God is for you. And we need to realize that we walk before him. And when we realize that we walk before him, that reality will purify our way. Because there's nothing worse than breaking the heart of the one who loved us enough to send his son to die on a cross for our sins. That is a great motivation. You walk before him, and so do I. God doesn't miss a trick. And when we walk before him, he says, and be blameless. Live in such a way that there is no way to bring blame or reproach against our lives. And I got to be honest with you. It breaks my heart that Christians don't take their lives as seriously as God does. It breaks my heart that we're so easy to dismiss our own failings and focus on others. I just had to talk with someone. They said, Christian guy, I said, I just don't understand why so many Christians are so focused on trying to keep gay marriage as illegal and they're mailing in their own marriages. I said, man, it's hypocrisy. Not saying that we shouldn't stand up for what we believe, but God forbid the people who are crusading against these things and their wives are like, I don't think my husband even loves me. See, we need to take our lives as seriously as God does. And God values our lives. God wants our lives to be lived in such a way that we walk before Him. And even if no one else understands, we walk before Him. Jesus is Envy and jealousy can cause people to do crazy things. We saw Sarah do something really mean to Hagar. Who would send a pregnant woman, Hagar, into the desert? An envious and jealous Sarah would. But Pastor Daniel showed us the Lord's mercy and concern for Hagar. God also caused some kind of reconciliation because he told Hagar to return to the camp that she'd been kicked out of. Pastor Daniel's message today is just one of many he shared from a variety of books in the Bible. Would you like to explore more? 
Just visit JesusIsRealRadio.com to access our library of audio. You can also connect with Pastor Daniel on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram through the links you'll find at the bottom of the page, JesusIsRealRadio.com. Hey, this is Josh, and I wanted to personally thank you for listening today to Jesus Is Real Radio. Did you know that Pastor Daniel also has a TV program? It's called Real with Daniel Fusco. I want to encourage you to go to JesusIsRealRadio.com Click on the stations option in the main menu and find out if Real with Daniel Fusco airs on a TV station in your area. Make sure to tune in again as Pastor Daniel will share the conclusion of his teaching, Ishmael. You'll hear about the birth of Ishmael and God's confirming the promise he made to Hagar. And even though this was a sticky situation for Abraham, Sarah, and Hagar, you'll get to see that God will give at least a bit of peace to this household, at least for a while. There's more to come from Pastor Daniel's series called Patriarchs. Please glance at the clock right now. Make plans to join us again for another edition of Jesus Is Real Radio.